So um, if you've got your Bibles, grab them, open them to the book of Mark. We are continuing our series, Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 15 through 19. We're continuing our series called Jesus is King. Today's message is called A Jesus Kind of Mess. I'm going to read the scripture. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen. You can follow along with us, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into the message. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. We receive it. Incline our hearts to your word and not towards selfish gain. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple. And John adds, and making a whip of cords, back to Mark, it says, those, uh, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables, the tables of the money changers, and he overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy Jesus, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a precious privilege it is to gather freely around your word. Reality Santa Barbara is a people who are dedicated to the truth of your word. Lord, we open ourselves to that truth today. Spirit of truth, make Jesus known to us today. Make these words come alive to us today. Your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Do surgery on our hearts today. Bring things into the light that need to be brought into the light, but always in light of your grace, always in light of your love Show yourself today, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. True confession, I don't like having to clean. I don't like cleaning anybody's mess, and I especially don't like cleaning somebody else's mess. It's a problem. I'm a dad. Um, our, our house is full of mess all the time, and every time I come home from work, um, or even after a long trip out to Santa Barbara, the house just is, it's a mess. It's, it's disheveled. I don't, like, I don't like having to do it, but I do it because I love my kids. And as much as I don't like the mess of right now, I really don't like the mess that builds up as a result of not cleaning right now. Uh, some of you like cleaning. You saints, how many of you would say you actually like cleaning? Man, all over the place. You saintly people, you. I, 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 don't, I don't get it, but they say cleanliness is, is next to godliness, and, and I, I, I kind of get that. 
Worse than cleaning actual physical messes, I don't like cleaning up relational messes. I don't know if you've noticed this, but humans have a way of making messes. In the 90s, there was a particular movie by Quentin Tarantino, a movie that I will not endorse um, in the way of Jesus. It does not do anything good for your soul. Really, any Quentin Tarantino movie won't do that for you. But if you've seen this, you'll pick up on this idea right away. This was a movie in the 90s. Um, a, a couple of characters uh, were hired as hitmen to go uh, and retrieve a mysterious briefcase by any means necessary. And these guys had some criminal background, but they were creating a mess everywhere they went. And at a certain point in the movie, which is very entertaining, but I don't endorse it. Um, there was a particular character called the cleaner. The cleaner came to make sense of the mess of these two hitmen. Everywhere these hitmen went, they created more problems than they solved. And the cleaner, played by Harvey Keitel, was hired. He was very expensive. He, but, but he really did make sense of the mess. He came up behind these guys, and he had no emotion about it. Uh, there were no speeches about while eating someone's burger or drinking someone else's milkshake. The cleaner came in with swift, merciless violence and cleaned the hitman's mess. It was an expensive ordeal. Violence and criminal thuggery, but the cleaner cleaned the mess. I don't like cleaning messes. Ruth called me one Saturday morning when we were first married, um, and I heard a tone in her voice that I have not heard, I had not ever heard, and thankfully I've never heard since. She was distraught. I had just sat down to watch the University of Georgia play a football game. I'm a big Georgia fan, and they were playing in the middle of the day, which tells you what kind of season they had. It was not a primetime game. This was the early 2000s, and um, Ruth was out shopping, and she was driving her 1987 five-speed convertible BMW, and she loved to do that. That was her ritual on Saturday. She would go out, and she would just go from one place to the other shopping, and she called, and I could tell by the sound of her voice, that there was a mess that had just happened. Stephen, somebody hit me. As soon as she said that, I jumped up, and before she said the next thing, I'm already out the door. Didn't even lock the door, jumped in the car, and, and by the time she finished telling me what happened, I was driving full speed. Some drunk driver had hit her, crushed the back of that BMW to the ground to where it was scraping the bottom of the, uh, or scraping the road. And she said, somebody hit me and he's getting away. He's getting away. I'm going after him. I was like, do not go after him. And she, sure enough, she does. And I'm trying to convince her to stop driving. She won't stop driving. She's just a couple of miles away. I meet up with her. She's finally parked the BMW. Sparks are still flying from the back of the car. Is the thing gonna blow up? I don't know, but I'm looking at my wife and I see something in her eyes. 
she somehow got the guy off the side of the road. He's driving on the parking lot. His window is down, and he's cussing my wife out. And she's saying, Stephen, he won't stop. He won't, pull, he won't give me his insurance. And something in me, young pastor, son of a pastor, meek and mild, something in me snapped. I threw the car into park. And I said, pull over! He pulled over. But he said, man, I didn't do anything. I told you to pull over! So he pulls over. And, he's, and, he, and he parks the car. He parks the truck. I'm like, man, I didn't expect it to go that way. And so, sure enough, he, he looks back. I said, get out of the car and sit on the curb. I've never punched a guy in the face, not as an adult. I don't have a knife. I don't, have, I'm just, I, don't know where, I don't know where this thing is going. But I'm just using the full throat of my voice to take authority in the situation. And the guy does what I tell him to do. I'm, I'm the cleaner. I'm making sense of this mess. I go over and I say, okay, baby, are you okay? She's like, baby. I said, are you okay? <laughs> and she said, uh, and, and right then, a, a witness who, who had seen the whole thing, he kind of pulled over and he was taking care of Ruth as well. I was like, man, thanks for this. And he's like, hey, bro, he's getting up. I turned around and I said, I told you to sit down. He's like, man, I was just getting a cigarette. I said, you sit down and you get him a cigarette. There was another guy riding. I didn't even notice there was another guy until both guys got up. And the law of hospitality. I still got to show the guy hospitality. He needs a cigarette. Is this what's happening in Mark chapter 11? Is Jesus Harvey Keitel as the cleaner? Has meek and mild Jesus finally flipped his lid? Is he using the full throat of his anger in this temple situation? What's happening? I thought Jesus was a pacifist. I thought Jesus was nonviolent. The Gospel of John says Jesus fashioned a whip in this situation. What is he doing? What's going on? Did, did the gospel writers kind of keep that part of Jesus tucked in for, for the most of the gospels? And finally, this kind of Jesus leaks out. If you've seen pictures of Jesus over the years, you see this pale Jesus who looks almost weak and, and kind of influenced by the Greek thought, which says that, you know, that, that you're supposed to ascend over earthy workiness. But Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was not a milk toast of a man. Jesus was 100% human and 100% Divine. We talked about it in weeks past. He laid aside his, uh, the, the, the access to all knowledge, the access um, to all power, but he accessed that through the Spirit. Jesus also tells us that he only did what he saw the Father doing. So what's going on when Jesus shows up to the temple? In the 80s and 90s, there was a movement called What Would Jesus Do? Anybody remember What Would Jesus Do? Do you have a What Would Jesus Do t-shirt or bracelet or bumper sticker? Yeah, me too. Um, and and, and when the guys were thinking about this campaign, they weren't thinking about the last two passages of Mark. Jesus cursing a fig tree. What would Jesus do? Curse the guy who cuts you off in traffic. Is that what Jesus would do? 
when Jesus, is, Jesus shows up at the temple and things are not what he expected. And Jesus starts flipping out. Is that what, Je- is that, is that what, the, what would Jesus do movement wants us to do? Man, I didn't like that song, Joseph. I'm going to start flipping out here. Is that what we're supposed to do? Well, today we're going to look at a couple of different images in Scripture that make sense of what Jesus did. Jesus is a rabbi, but Jesus is doing things. He's always been doing things to kind of upstage the temple. The temple is representative of God space. In fact, from Genesis chapter 1, we see a temple, the place where God and humanity meet. In the middle of the garden, Yahweh meets Adam, and and Yahweh creates order from chaos. The the Spirit of, of God was hovering over the deep, and what does it say? He makes order of that chaos. He he makes order from the Hebrew is tohu vavohu. And he what he what you see in the Genesis creation account is the creation of a mountain temple, the place where humanity meets with God. And then what happens? Well, humans always make a mess of a temple. Humans always make mess of temple space. Humans always make mess of the God-human overlap. In creation, try as we might, we always make a mess of these spaces. So Genesis chapter 1, we don't have the verses on the screen. Many of you know these. I'm just going to read them to you. Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So God created man in his own image. There it is. We are created by God, for God, to be with God. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that male and female, he created them, is incredibly important for this temple imagery. Because it says that there's not just one kind of person who is appropriate for the, king, for the presence of God. It says that there is distinctiveness within the unity. That God created unity, and that unity is the, with Godness, But inside that with Godness is a vast distinctiveness. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created by God, for God, to be with God. But then God created us. We talked about this last week. What this tells us is that you and I, in this church, we were created as God's blessable, image-bearing covenant partners through whom he wants to create more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners. That's not just procreation. That's discipleship. 
That's what happens when we gather around truth. That's what happens when you gather in your home groups. That's what happens when you go to coffee with a brother or sister in Christ. That's what happens in your home when you open scripture together or sing worship together. You're creating more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners, and through the, t- together we create a community of beauty, justice, peace, righteousness, goodness, kindness, generosity, hospitality. All the good things come when we gather together. That's what Genesis says. And that is the nature of that temple space. From page one of the Bible, the the authors of Scripture are creating this image that we are made to be with God and made to worship God with one another in all our distinctiveness. Guess what didn't go away? After the fall. We made a mess of things. Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. See, it, would, it seems like it would be simple uh, that if we would just be with God, we could become more like God. And if we would spend time in prayer, we could do these things. Uh, we, could, we could faithfully bear the image of God. But it's not just up to us. You see, what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3 was they started listening to another voice, a compelling voice, the voice that says, you belong to yourself. It says, you determine your destiny. It says, you don't need anyone or anything. That's actually kind of a compelling voice. That's the American dream. That's, that's the voice of the modern West. It's the, it's the myth of progress. It's the myth that if we could just get everyone to agree on a certain kind of education, or if we could get better uh, medicine, if we could get better health care, um, if we could just have better technology, if we could solve the, the houseless issue, if we could solve the addiction issue, then everything would be better. But page one of Scripture says... You're made by God, for God, to be with God in community. The serpent comes along and tells an alternative story. And what do Adam and Eve do? They make a mess of the temple. They're cast out of the temple. If you don't know your Bible, can I just tell you what happens next? Everybody is trying to get back into that space. But everybody takes good and bad into their own hands. Everybody is trying to get back into that space because there's something in us that knows that we need something outside of ourselves while the voices of culture are telling us, no, 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 look inside yourself. Humans always make a mess of temples. Just outside of, they're not outside of Eden yet. They're just outside of the center of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's boys, Adam and Eve's boys make a mess of a temple space. They're trying to sacrifice. Um, actually, one is doing it well. One is presenting his, his very best before God, and the other 
His, his gift isn't, isn't accepted by God. Now, scripture doesn't tell us that it's because it's not his best, but it, he, God tells Cain, if you do well, don't you know, you'll be accepted. And instead of worshiping God together, there is division. And God says to Cain, sin is crouching, coiled at your door. Its desire is to have you. Cain and Abel are going to God for forgiveness. The temple is the space where we find forgiveness. The temple is the space where where heaven and earth overlap and we find forgiveness. But forgiveness is a messy business. In the book of Exodus, by the time you get there, God says something amazing. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will tabernacle among you. I'll make my dwelling among you. And, and he gives them instructions for this tabernacle. And, and, and it's a pathway to the presence of God. And they take it very seriously. And they begin to follow these rigid rules. Now, the rigid rules are, are just a pathway. It's an invitation to encounter God. It, it's not bad. It's just, it's just a signpost for what will be. And so they begin to worship God in this tabernacle space. And then God says, uh, Build a temple. David has the the idea. He's got the plans, but Solomon actually builds the temple. And you know what happens from there. Humans make a mess of the temple. And the whole forgiveness thing is a messy, messy business. Israel splits in two. They get exiled. They keep trying to come back, and they come back, and they they finally build a temple space again. And it says that once they do, that that all the young people, they, they make that first sacrifice before God, and all the young people cheer, yay, we did it. And all the priests, and all the all the all the people that have been around for a while, they sob crying. Because God did not accept their offering. Rome eventually takes over. And when Rome takes over, this guy named Herod, the king, uh, King Herod, dominates. He's very good at what he does. He builds the temple mount, and it is stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous. And Second temple scholarship starts happening. We're so grateful for all that those people did because we have our Bibles because of their scholarship. But it's not quite the same. Someone comes along and buys the priesthood. They buy the high priesthood. A guy named Annas buys the high priesthood. And his nephew, Caiaphas, takes over. And Caiaphas may be the worst high priest in all of Israel's history. You see, the temple was supposed to be a place where people could come find forgiveness and wholeness. All the things that a blessable human image-bearing covenant partner should do. It was supposed to be a witness to the nations. And in fact, people from all over the world would come 
from the diaspora to come worship. But did you know that if you were a Jew who followed certain rules, you could, you could come to the pretty close to the center of this garden temple. But then if you weren't clean, you couldn't come in if you, if you were a male Jew. If you're a female Jew, you could, you could come maybe a little bit. You could come close, but not as close. But if you were a Gentile, you could come. You could come in the temple complex, but you would be, you'd be outside. You know, this is where Jesus kept coming to do most of his teaching. If you Google the Israel, the Jerusalem temple, you'll see the temple complex, and there's this, there's this, there's this rooftop place called Solomon's Portico. And Jesus comes in, and he's coming to the temple day after day. And he's healing the sick, and he's teaching with authority. This is what's happening when Jesus comes to the temple in Mark chapter 11. He's coming to teach, but when he arrives, what he sees sets something off on the inside of him. Did you notice the kind of seat that Jesus turned over? It says the seat of those who sold what? Anybody remember? Pigeons. Wait a minute, I thought, I thought we sacrificed lambs. Well, in, in fact, Josephus tells us that in those days, 255,000 lambs were sold and sacrificed in the week of Passover, the week leading up to what would be Jesus' crucifixion. So, yes, there were lambs. But you know who could afford lambs? Not poor people. Most people, the majority of the people, could not afford. And so if you were poor, your sacrifice was to buy a pigeon or a turtle dove. Do you know what was happening? Caiaphas. Caiaphas had turned temple worship, he turned religion into a way to become exceedingly wealthy. The high priests would demand that the priests go get a certain amount of money. Like a highway patrolman at the, begin, at the end of the month trying to get tickets. Like a tax collector. They would beat these priests until they brought the money. You know what the priests would do? Dominate and exploit the poor. It used to be that the, that the, you, that the money changers and the, you could buy your, your sacrifice outside the temple complex, down in the valley. But Caiaphas found a way to make more money. Making money is not bad. It's not bad at all. But exploitation and domination is. And so Caiaphas brought the money changers right to the heart of the temple. Think about all those animals you know who was displaced? The Gentiles. 
the people of all nations. The people who had come the farthest, who had worshipped God with the best that they had. And they would come with their own turtle doves or their own pigeons, and, they would, and, and the money changers would look at them and cast them away and say, no, you got to buy this one. So what is Jesus doing when he fashions that whip? Is he whipping people? No. He's driving out the cattle. He's driving out the sheep. He's turning over the tables of those who are exploiting the weak and the vulnerable. And Jesus is being the new and better high priest. The book of Matthew, when it tells this version of the story, <clears throat> Matthew 21, 14, it says, after Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Matthew 21 says, after, the, after Jesus cleansed the temple, after he, he created that space, someone filled that space. Do you know who it was? The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and Jesus healed them. Jesus' entire ministry, he upstaged the temple. Not because the temple was bad. Not because these religious rituals were bad. Not because praying was bad. Not because asking for forgiveness was bad. Not because sacrifice was bad. All of those things are exceedingly good. But because those things pointed to him. You see, some people want the healing, but not the healer. Some people want the forgiveness, but not the forgiver. Jesus was saying, I am both the healer and the presence. Uh, I am both, I bring healing, but I bring the presence of the healer. I am the Lord who heals you. Humans always make mess of temples, but Jesus is unafraid of your mess. No matter what kind of mess you've made in your life, no, no matter what kind of mess has been made of your life by other people, no, no matter what kind of mess you see yourself having to step into, maybe you're in the middle of a season where you're having to clean up someone else's mess. Maybe you find yourself coming from a family of origin that was just a mess. And your, your whole discipleship seems to be trying to not be like mom or dad or not be like grandma or grandpa or not be like brother or sister or aunt or uncle. Or maybe as a result of family of origin, you've made a mess of things yourself. Guess who's not afraid of your mess? When you come to the temple, wait a minute, is this a temple? Are we in a temple right now? Jesus did something remarkable when he gave himself as the temple. 
He invited us to be a part. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know your body, your body, our body together is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we gather, there's something special. There's something temple about our gathering. Jesus wants to come in and heal. Jesus wants to come in and restore. Jesus wants to come in and make new. Where there was hopelessness, Jesus wants to bring hope. Jesus wants to form your imagination through this gesture of driving out the enemies to goodness, driving out the enemies to righteousness, beauty, and peace. It's not that the temple was bad. It's that Jesus is better. It's not that the temple was evil. It was not evil. Jesus fulfilled that temple. It's not that the exchange itself was bad. The exchange of an animal sacrifice for forgiveness. It's that it's now obsolete currency in Jesus. By healing the Gentiles, by healing the lame. Jesus is looking at the system of haves and have-nots, the system of cultural elites, and saying, it's all obsolete currency. Every valuation of cultural worth, every valuation of haves and have-nots is now obsolete currency in Christ. If you have a body and you are following Jesus, your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Through your body now, you can experience wholeness and forgiveness. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, Jesus has come to bring reconciliation. All other estimations of worth or obsolete currency. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, with my limited ability and in the limited amount of time, I tried to illuminate your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit fill in the gap. Lord Jesus, this space is not a temple, but our bodies are your temple. And so, Lord, we long to experience your presence. Lord, if there are any sick among us, I pray for your healing today as we worship. If there are any, if there's any unforgiveness, I pray that you would, by your spirit, prompt us to forgive. Maybe some of us need to step outside and send a text message or make a phone call and forgive someone. Lord, if, there, if there's any anxiety, any fear, any worry, any heavy burden, don't let us leave, Lord, 
without lifting that burden. You'd say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You say, cast our cares upon you. Lord Jesus, just as you fashion the whip to drive out the symbols of exploitation and domination and manipulation, Lord, drive out those voices that would tell us that we're not loved. Drive out those voices that would try to tell us that we can take good and bad into our own hands. And help us fall into your grace in these next few moments of worship. In Jesus' name. In these next couple of moments, I invite you to open your heart, lift your hands, lift your voice in worship. We have communion. We have carpets. Come worship God. Let's respond to the goodness of God right there in your own physical body as an act of surrender. Let's worship Jesus.